I want to just share with you today what God has been doing in my life lately, okay? And uh, it's going to be a little different in that every now and then we like to just not use the screens to put the scriptures up on, and the reason for that is that we believe it's important for us to see where in the scriptures we are, and so it's always good for us to get centered back on the scriptures. So if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there are some that are spread out throughout the seats today. If you would, reach over and grab one. We want everybody to be able to read the Bible. And if you have it in a digital device, go for that, but we want you to have it in front of you so they will not be up on the screen. I'm sorry for those of you that that makes it difficult for. We're not trying to make it difficult. We just really believe that scripture is the foundation and the highest uh, source of truth that I can provide. And so it's good for us to keep that as the center of what we're doing during this time. And so if you do, if you would, do whatever it takes to get your hands on a Bible this morning. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible is our gift to you. We love you. Take it home. It would just bless our hearts if we have to uh, replace that Bible. So make sure Uh, That if you don't own a Bible, you take that one home with you. Once you have a Bible, if you would, open it up to Psalm 16. Psalm 16 today. Psalm 16, if you have one of the church Bibles, those hardbacks that are in the seats, it'll be page 453. 453. Um, Psalm 16 is a beautiful psalm. And it's also a really very interesting psalm. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls and fills the believers, there are people gathered in Jerusalem from all over, tons of people. And so, filled with the Spirit, Peter steps out and he delivers the very first sermon he ever preaches. And in that sermon, in Acts chapter 2, The text that he preaches from is Psalm 16. And then in Acts chapter 13, when Paul accepts Jesus Christ, does a 180 in his life, immediately changes. He who is oppressing the church now becomes uh, an apostle through this process. He almost immediately has an opportunity to preach. And the very first sermon that he preaches is found in Acts chapter 13. And the text that he preaches from, also Psalm 16. So the two apostles that we have the very first sermons they preach, both pull from this passage. And it's a beautiful psalm. And that's what I want to start by reading to you today. Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Bless the Lord. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. 
I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I love the Psalms. And as Pastor Nathan shared right at the beginning of service, if you weren't here, as he was reading from a different Psalm, the Psalms give us a window into the hearts of the person who writes them. And, and he shared just that psalm where it talks about the cords of death entangling us. Like they're so visceral, they're so real, they're so, you see what's really happening as a window into somebody's heart. And Psalm 16 is that very thing. And there's so few things that we know about this psalm. Number one, we know that it's by David. Number two, it says right at the beginning that it's a miktam. So this is a miktam of David. And that would be super helpful if anybody had any idea what a miktam is. Nobody knows, and everybody throws out ideas. It's a miktam of David. That means this, but nobody really knows what in the world that means. There are six psalms that are called miktams of David, and all the rest of them are all in a grouping. So that five of them are all together from Psalm 56 through Psalm 60. And then sticking out like a sore thumb is Psalm 16, which is also a miktam of David. We have no idea what it means, but it, all of the others come from a dark place in David's life. Like a moment of darkness and a moment of, of, of a hard, and they tell you right at the top, this is where this comes from in David's life. This one, we have no idea because it doesn't give us that background. One thing we do know that this was written sometime after 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. So this happens at some point after David conquers Jerusalem, after he brings back the ark, between then and the end of his life, this was written. And that's all the information that we are given. But it's very clearly this deep cry from David's heart. A deep cry from David's heart. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And then the next day he sees Jesus again, and this time it says that Jesus is walking by. And again he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And the second time he says it, he has two disciples with him. And these two disciples of John the Baptist hear this from John, they see Jesus, and they say, okay, we're going to follow him. And so it says, without saying a word, apparently not to John the Baptist, <laughs> apparently not to Jesus, they just get in right behind Jesus and start following after him. And it says that after they've walked for a little bit, Jesus stops, and he turns around, and he looks at them, and he says... What do you want? In the NIV, he says, what do you want? In the ESV, he says, what are you seeking? In the NRSV, he says, what are you looking for? In the message, he says, what are you after? And this is the deepest question that Jesus can ask them. What do 
you want. That's what Psalm 16 is about. Because you hear from David right off at the, at the beginning, you hear this cry of his heart. He says to God, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And then he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. When he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord, the first time, at least in my Bible, it's all caps. I don't know what it looks like in your Bible. The second time, just the first letter is capitalized. And that's because the first time he is using the, 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 the high name for God, Yahweh. And, and there, it's, in my Bible, it's always translated as a capital, all capital letters, Lord. The second time he's talking about you are Lord as in the ruler. You are my king. So he says to God, to Yahweh, you are the Lord of me. Okay, you are my king. And then he says... And I have no good apart from you. This is the weakest of the adjectives in this whole psalm. Like scan through the psalm and see the beautiful adjectives he uses. Excellent ones. He talks about pleasant places and beautiful inheritances. And he talks about... Uh, 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 corruption, or he talks about the presentness is the fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. I mean, just absolutely descriptive words, and yet it begins with what I think is probably the most overused adjective ever, good. Right? I asked my daughter, how was your day at school? Good. I asked her, how did you sleep? Good. How was gym class today? Good. I'm like, can you use any other word besides good? Because to me, when you look at that word, the first thing that we think of is that it's just over the line from mediocre. Like if you have a spectrum from mediocre to great, that somewhere near the bottom of that is good, right? And so when my daughter says to me, how was, your, how, was, how was your day at school? I want something more. I want to know how did it go? What were the joys? What were the, like, the worst moments? What were the best moments? And she says, good. And I'm pretty sure that'll get so much better when she becomes a teenager. Because at that point, then she'll be much more open about her feelings and what's happening in her life. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. But for now, all I get is good. And we read this. And he says, I don't have, I have no good apart from you. And we think that it's just like this weak adjective, but it's actually so much more because the word has to mean more. Because he is saying a high, high statement here. And let me be transparent. He is making a statement that I could not make truthfully today. I could not say I have no good apart from you and mean it from the depths of my soul. I want to, but I'm not there yet. And I want to make a change, but I could not say that honestly today. What he is saying when, I say, when he says I have no good apart from you, he is saying, I have nothing as an end, as a desire. That what, what is, When something is good, that means we want it, we desire it. For Eve in Eden, what was the breakover point when the enemy was tempting her? 
What was the point at which she said, okay, I'm going to do this? It was in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, where she says, when she saw that it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was be, to be desired. So to be good means that you desire it, that you want it, that you seek after it. And David says here, right at the beginning, he cries out and he says, I have no good apart from you. I have nothing that I desire. I have nothing that I am seeking apart from that which is in you. Right in the very first verse, this is the cry of his heart. And the rest of the psalm is the outworking of these two verses, this initial cry of his heart. Preserve me, and oh God, I have no good apart from you. In Psalm 119, verse 68, it says, You are good and do good. David is saying here that all good is from God and anything from God is good. And then in James chapter 1 verse 17 he says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything that is good is from him. And everything that is from him is good. And this is the cry that David lays out right at the beginning of this psalm. And I wish, I wish, I wish that I could say that and mean it. But I'm not there yet. Verse 3 or 4, right after that, then you see the other side of it. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. David is saying that if we put any other God before us, then it will result in nothing but sorrow. St. Augustine, who was the coolest of the church fathers, the coolest, like he was the cool guy. When they gathered together, everybody knew he was the cool guy. He wore the leather jacket at all of the father meetings, St. Augustine said. And if you Google his, his just put in St. Augustine, Augustine quotes and Google it and read some of his quotes, you'll be like, okay, yeah, he was the cool guy. Like he and C.S. Lewis in my book are like up there. St. Augustine said, oh Lord, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He made us for him. And until we find that rest in him, we will always be restless. When I was growing up in Kenosha, I remember when um, there was, a, there was a, a, a ballot initiative. And there was a dog track that wanted to move into Kenosha. And so it went on the ballot, and everybody, well, not everybody was against it because it passed. And we were disappointed by that because immediately, like legitimately, you notice like a, just a significant, there was an obvious element now in Kenosha from that point forward. It eventually kind of fell apart, and anyways, it's no longer there, but it was called the Dairyland Greyhound Tracks. If you've ever seen greyhound dogs, oh, they are beautiful. Absolutely elegant animals and so fast. 
They have bred within them this desire to chase. And so if you've ever been to a dog track, which of course I have not, but if you've ever been to a dog track, they have the gates, and the dogs are in the gates, and they're ready to go, and right before the dogs are released, there's a mechanical hair on the inside track. It's called mechanical hair. It's essentially this mechanical, looks like a rabbit. Right before the gates open, boom, the rabbit takes off. And they see that, and as soon as the gates are open, it is so within their soul, is so within them and how they've been bred that they just immediately take off and they race. I mean, and they are fast. But no matter how fast they are, they never catch it because it is a rigged system. Like, they're never going to catch it. It always, the fastest of dogs, no matter how fast it runs, it stays just outside of their reach. In fact, it's designed to go at the speed that is necessary to just barely outpace them. So it keeps track of how fast the dogs are running, and it goes just a little bit quicker. And that front dog, when he wins the race, he doesn't get the rabbit. So he can win. He can outpace all the rest of the dogs. But he does not get what he was chasing after. He can look back and say, hey, suckers, I'm beating you. But the thing that he's looking for and the thing that he's chasing after will always outpace him. And what David says here in verse 4 is that exact same thing. If we put anything else where God belongs, then it will always book it. And it will always outpace us. And we're seeking after it. And we're chasing it. And we can look back at all the suckers. We can be outpacing them. But we will never catch the thing that we're going after. It will always stay out of reach. And it will always result in sorrows. So David says, I have no good apart from you. Because I look around and I see those who are chasing after other things and idols and gods and they always outpace them. And the word for run here is not just like a dainty jog. It is a full out chase. They are putting everything they've got into it and they never catch what they're trying to catch. And boy, again, if we look back, we can feel really good about the distance between us and everybody else. But as far as catching it, it'll never be caught. So he continues on. He says the other side of that is this. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The words that he is using here. The language he's using is from when the Israelites first came in to the promised land. This land that had been promised to them. And they get there and God has already figured out who's getting what. And so he begins to split it up. He divides the land and he gives this portion to somebody and this portion to somebody else. And he puts the lines, the boundary lines in between them. And every tribe gets something except for the tribe of the Levites. Which if I would have been a Levite, I would have been a little bummed. Because it said to the Levites, 
It says in scripture that the Levites, their portion, their inheritance was God. Which sounds really, really good until you stop and you think about it. Wait a second. Everybody gets God. But they get God and property. If I were to put in my will, hey, Clara, you get everything. And Asher, you get God. Like, Asher would look at me like, are you kidding me? She gets God too. She just gets God and everything else. What C.S. Lewis said is that the person who has God and everything else has no more than the one who just has God. And what David says here is not just that this is what has been portioned to me. Here's what he says. The Lord is my, what? Chosen portion. He chose this. He said, you give me the opportunity to decide. And you say, hey, you can take this portion of land. Well, I am going to choose the Lord. And he said, when I choose the Lord, then he is my portion. He is my cup. He holds my lot. And as a result, the lines fall for me in pleasant places. So when the boundary lines are around the Lord, I am going to have pleasant places as my boundary. When we first moved into the house that was the very first house we built, we put up a fence because we wanted to stake out the boundary. We wanted our dogs to be able to run and have full use of the backyard. Our backyard was the biggest on our street. And we didn't want other people using our backyard. I know. Great believer, right? So we put up a fence. You know what the very first thing I did after that fence was up? I walked to the outside of it, opened the back gate, and I looked to see, based on where the fence was and where the peg was, how many inches I was losing and giving up to my neighbors. I put up the boundary, and the very first thing I do is go to the boundary and say, how much more could I have gotten? This is true. And we do this all the time. You give me a boundary, and the very first thing I'm going to do is walk up to the very edge of that boundary, and I'm going to look right over the edge to see what am I missing out on. Have you ever, those of you who have cattle, you've probably seen this. I've seen it as I'm driving by. Have you ever seen a cow right up against a barbed wire fence reaching its head through the top and the middle line, reaching over to get one little tuft of green grass that is on the other side of the fence. I've seen a cow doing that where his legs are pushed back and his head's reaching out and his mouth is open, his tongue is out, and he's just trying to get that. And right behind him is a massive green pasture. And he's like going this little tuft. I'm like, first off, I don't know how you're getting back out of that situation. And second, that's a little tiny bit, but there's something about it that when we set our boundaries, we stalk the edges of it and we look and see what's on the outside of it. Unless, unless he is our chosen portion. And when our boundary lines fall around him, then those boundaries are in pleasant places. What David is saying here is I chose him as my portion. 
Don't give me God and everything else. Give me God. That's all I want. I want him no good apart from you. The passion of my heart, the desire of my heart is for him and for him alone. And even back to Psalm 16, the very next verse, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, also my heart instructs me. That is such an interesting verse because he just said that what he does is he tells his heart what he wants. He chooses it, right? I have set the Lord before me. It says in the very next verse, heart. I have set him before me. But now he's saying, and I listen to my heart. And late at night it is instructing me in these things. He says, what is holding my heart? Have you ever stopped and thought about some of the ridiculous things we do in our culture? Like right after Christmas, as soon as Christmas is over, you're going to walk through the aisles and you'll see all the Valentine's stuff get out. And I mean, it's immediate, Valentine's. Why? Because you can capitalize and get people to buy more stuff. And it's, it's super, super expensive and you end up paying it. And then, But what I think is so interesting about it is some of the things that we use in our culture to symbolize our love. Like, have you ever stopped and thought about somewhere along the line, we decided that a teddy bear is something that, that symbolizes love. So we give out teddy bears to our children. Oh, it's so soft and cuddly. Is that something we really want to teach our kids? When you see a bear, you should go up and give it a hug. Like, a bear is not an animal that you want to take to bed with you. Right? It's not soft and cuddly. I mean, it's soft at first, and then it's really, really painful. But have you ever stopped and thought about that? But that's what we use as a symbol of love. And if we really want to show somebody it's a symbol of love, I mean, we've decided that our heart, the thing that's in our chest that beats blood to our extremities, is not literally, but figuratively, the example of, of, of what the seed of our emotions is. Okay? So if we really want to show somebody we love them, we give them a bear with a dismembered human heart in its paws. That does not work for me. Like, that doesn't make sense to me. I, I think, boy, from now on, every time you see a bear with a dismembered human heart, remember the word dismembered in the middle of that. Because, like, totally changes what that's about. Like, it totally changes the feel of that whole thing. Well, the word heart here, the heart for them, what they saw as the seat of their emotions was their kidneys. So if you really wanted to be sweet for somebody this, Chris, or this coming Valentine's Day, give them a bear with a dismembered human kidney in its paws. And that'll really demonstrate the depths of your love, right? Like that's what, because he says here, he says, and, and I don't know if it's maybe, because legitimately they, they saw it as more of the gut, they, I don't know if it's because they felt their stuff more deeply, both like figuratively and literally, but it's like this deeper sense of not, not something I'm manufacturing or something I'm coming up with. It's coming out from the inside kind of thing. And he says here, he says that uh, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart, my kidney instructs me. My kidney cries out in the middle of the night. Some of you are like, oh yeah, that's what I, I've got that same problem. Uh, 
it's a prostate thing. And, um, but he says, my kidney instructs me. My kidney, my inner person, my feelings, my heart, the center of my emotions are speaking back to me. And this is hugely important because at first it seems like he's setting what, is in, what he wants to feel. Or, or he sets and says, this is what I'm going to do. But now he's saying that it's actually coming from the inside of me. This is why this is important. Because the Romans and the Greeks, they believe that the, highest, the, the greatest struggle is between reason, our ability to think, and then our feelings, right? So it's between our soul and our body, that, that it's about subjecting our emotions to our reason. That's what they considered to be the great human struggle. Today, we're on the opposite end of that spectrum. And today, when we look around and, and we say, okay, what is the great human struggle today? What we would see as the answer is the great human struggle is getting in touch with the deepest emotions of our, of our kidney or our heart or whatever. Getting in touch with those things and then not letting anything repress that. And the Bible takes a completely different approach from any of them. The Bible says the great human struggle is this, what is going on in our hearts? What are the passions of our hearts? And it doesn't say subject them, it says change them. Change the focus and the desire and the end and the good, the thing that your heart is aiming towards, the thing that your heart is crying for. Don't just go with it and don't just repress it, change it. And this is what we see in Psalm 16. This is what David is talking about. He said, if it's set towards anything but God, it will result in suffering. It'll result in sorrows because I'll just keep chasing it and it'll keep outrunning me. But he's saying, I'm not just setting this up. I'm not just deciding that this is how I'm going to feel. Or this is. He says, I decide what I'm going to do, but then I also feel it. And the only way that works is that we are changed from the inside out. When, when Jesus called there, the disciples started following him, he didn't turn around to them and say, what do you think? He didn't say to them, what do you believe? He asked them, what do you want? And he asked them that same question over and over and over and over again in different forms, right until the end when he asked Peter, do you love me? What do you want? And for David, this is both a decision and it is what is coming from the inside out. And here he says, again in verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I love verse 8 when put right alongside verse 4. Verse 8, which says... I've set the Lord always before me, so he is always at my right hand. Verse 4, which says, if I set anything else before me, I have to try to chase it down. So if we put anything else in God's place, we are going to end up running after that, and it will always outpace us. The second we set up an idol, it books it. And then there's God, who the moment that we set him before us, he stays at our right 
hand. And Isaiah 41, 13 says he just doesn't just stand there. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. And it is I who say to you, fear not, for I am the one who helps you. He doesn't just stand there. He grabs hand and he walks with us. So on one side of it, anything else we put in front of us will take off running and we got to chase it down. But if we put him before us, he stays at our right hand and he walks through it with us. And it says as a result, I will not be shaken. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad. Again, the heart coming back out. And my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Wasn't this the cry of his heart right at the very beginning? Oh God, be my refuge. Oh God, protect me and keep me safe. And now he says, not only is my whole being secure and rejoicing, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Not even death will keep me from you. Not even death will shake me. Nothing will. And he says, as a result of all of those things, verse 11, you make known to me the paths of life. And in your presence, There is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. There is nothing longer than forevermore. There is nothing more full than fullness. And we are promised fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And he says, you make known this path to me. So take verse 1 and where he starts. And then verse 11 where he ends. What a great psalm. It's a psalm about desire. Psalm about passion. Psalm about the kidney's cry. It's a psalm about the visceral feelings and setting those feelings in God. And the reason why Peter preached on this as his very first sermon And the reason why Paul preached on this as his very first sermon is because according to Peter, David wrote this because his desire was ultimately pointed at Christ. That his desire, though he might not have fully understood it, that he was prophetically looking towards Christ. See, Peter actually uses the passage in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, and says that when Nathan came to David and promised David that his throne would be established forever, he says, David didn't fully understand what was happening there, but it built in him a desire for Christ. Chapter 7, verse 12 says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 16, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
there's this promise of a throne that would be established forever. Now, come with me on David's life. As a king, sometime after this is said, and the end of his life, he writes Psalm 16. As a king, who the only precedent he knows is that the king before him was usurped. That the dynasty that came before him was replaced. There was only one other one, right? So that's all the precedent he has. And here he is as king. And there is a promise from God, your throne will be established forever. Can you imagine how that must have been his heart's cry? In the same way that Abraham's heart's cry was for this land, a homeland, right? David's cry was for an established throne. And here he has this promise. But here's the thing. According to Peter, when he writes Psalm 16, he recognizes that this cannot have a natural fulfillment. And that ultimately it needed to be recognized and satisfied in somebody else. And we don't know if David wrote Psalm 16 before or after his firstborn son raped his daughter. And we don't know if it's before or after his best son kills his firstborn son. And we don't know if it's before or after that best son usurps his throne, kicks him out of Jerusalem, and seeks to kill him. We don't know if it's after that son died. Like, we don't know where the psalm comes from. But he knows that he has a promise from God. My throne will be established forever. And ultimately he sees that that cannot be met in the natural. And that instead it must point through to something else. That in fact what he is crying out for is not for a throne. But he is crying out for eternal life. That's what Peter is saying. He says it is not met until it is met in Christ. And David is looking past the throne and seeing Christ, though he just sees it as afar off. And just as Abraham was searching for a homeland, he was looking through that homeland towards a better homeland. That's what it says in Hebrews. And that here, David's doing the same thing with his throne and seeing Christ. It's kind of like, again, my old house. When we got it, there was this sliding glass door that led out into that backyard with the beautiful fence. And uh, we didn't want our neighbors to be able to see in because we hadn't gone to the conference yet. (laughs) And we were like, let's just be us. And so we put these shades up, those vertical blind things. Those things are really cool. You can slide them open, slide the glass door open. And if you want to be able to see out, but you don't want people to see in, you can turn the little stick thing at the end, and, and then it just changes the angle a little bit. And so you can set it at a 45-degree angle. And when you look at that from straight on, it looks like it's blocked. Like you, can't, you cannot see out. But if you just kind of lean a little bit, you can see right out. And what this is saying is that David's desires, his deep heart's cry, that he thinks is for security, 
He recognizes that it cannot be met in the natural and that he looks past that and he might not fully understand it and understand that this is really about Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, but he sees past it and he sees that there is no way he can avoid death unless something major happens. So his desire for a throne is not in a vacuum, but instead, as he looks a little bit off to the side, he sees that as he can see through it, he sees. Because this is so huge for us. Liz and I had a major change in our life a couple months ago. Our youngest, Asher, went to kindergarten for the very first time. And boy, is it glorious. Because that means we get a day off together. Friday is our day together. And it's like I've been calling it my mini empty nest. Because we both have the day off. And so Friday we take together. And we do all kinds of fun things like the laundry. (laughs) And cleaning the kitchen. I know, it's dirty, right? And, never mind, okay. And my favorite grocery shopping. I know. We're wild. But I prefer to go grocery shopping with my wife over my son. And there's a reason for that. Because when I go with Asher, I have to spend the whole time telling him, no, we don't need that. No, no, we don't need that. Nope, we're just getting what's on the list. Nope, we don't need that. And when I go with my wife, she has to say, Alan, uh, we don't need that. Alan, we don't need that. We're sticking to the list. Totally different experience. We go much, much faster. See, we love generics. And when the kids are around, we just buy generics. It's no problem. I mean, if they're not there, though, it goes faster. Because the thing about Asher is he doesn't care about what's in the box. He cares about what's on the front of the box. And, And he would eat cardboard if on the front of the box, there was Mario, right? Because he loves Mario. He loves everything Mario. He doesn't care what the cereal tastes like. If it's got Mario on the front, it is good, right? Because some advertising executive at some point realized brilliantly that if he could take my son's love for Mario and connect it with their product, then all of a sudden, my son loves their product. And what happens is, in a much subtler way, every single day, those same advertisers, and it's not some conspiracy, they just want your money, those advertisers try to sell you on your deepest Heart cry desires. Because if they can take their product and your desire and match them, it doesn't matter whether the product will actually meet that desire. They sold you something. So they don't sell you a car. They sell you safety. They sell you protection. They sell you a refuge. They don't sell you a truck. They sell you respect and favor. 
They do not sell you a new cell phone. They sell you expanded boundaries. They take your heart's cry and connect it with their product. They don't sell you a politician. They sell you hope or fear. As long as they can put your desire on the front of it, they can sell what they want. So daily we are bombarded with messaging, taking these heart cries and associating them with something else. It's kind of like those shades again, where if I look a little to the left, I look and see through that desire to the ultimate source, which is Christ. Well, when that sun shines through those shades, on the floor I have shadows. And what those advertisers and all the messaging you hear daily is saying, that desire can only be met in this thing. And if we believe them, we will spend our entire lives chasing after shadows. So David says, oh, I have no good apart from you, God. So into that gap, Jesus steps and he says, what do you want? What do you want? What are you searching for? What are you seeking? Because it can only be met in me. David wanted a throne, but more he wanted eternal life. And that could only be met in Christ through his death and resurrection. For you and me, those deep heart cry desires for safety and protection and for love, all of those things are supposed to point to Christ. And everyone is trying to co-opt them. What do you want is what Jesus has been asking me. And my answer has been the applause of men. And he says back to me, Alan, that will never do it for you. If you allow that, you will ever be staking at your boundary lines looking for more. Seeking something that's just on the other side of it. You do not need the applause of men. You need my applause. And until I change what my heart's desire is, I will forever be dissatisfied. So God says to me, make me your heart's cry. May there be no good outside of me. No good, no desire, nothing that you set before you as your end apart from me. And see where that takes you. So I've been praying Psalm 16 over my heart. I've been praying Psalm 16 over my wife. And I've been praying Psalm 16 over my children. And I have been praying Psalm 16 over you.
May you set him as the heart's cry. And boy, if you don't mean it at first, start with just crying out, I have no good apart from you. And the way the Holy Spirit works is not to override our desires, but to change them from the inside out. How do we do that? Well, we do it by worshiping him. We do it by gazing at him. We do it by seeing his beauty. And you see it all through this psalm. Anything else will leave us empty. Anything else will result in sorrows. Anything else will chase it and it chase it and it'll constantly outpace us. Would you stand with me today? What do you want? What are you seeking? What are you looking for? What are you after? As David was after God's own heart, what are you after? What are you after? What is that heart's cry for you? What is it that you are seeking? Is it a spouse? Is it something new? Is it anything new? Is it safety? Is it protection? Is it love? Because all of those things, according to Psalm 16, are really supposed to point us to Christ. Don't let anyone co-opt those deep desires of your heart and make you chase after shadows because they will always outpace you. Always. Instead, let us let him reform our hearts, change our desires until we can say with honesty, I have no good apart from you. You are the Lord. You are the king of my heart.